G'day, I'm Glenn Davis, and this is The Policy Shop, a place where we think about policy choices. And in this episode, we turn our attention to the ongoing tragedy in Syria and the implications for refugees. It's over five years now since the Syrian conflict began, when the government of President Bashar al-Assad began using deadly force against pro-democracy protests in the wake of the Arab Spring. The country descended into civil war. Estimates suggest perhaps a quarter of a million Syrians or more have been killed and over a million injured. Close to five million have fled or been forced to leave the country and a further six and a half million are displaced within Syria. This war has sparked the largest forced migration crisis since the Second World War. Today, we'll discuss the global response to managing this crisis and ask what policies are required to deal with this huge influx in refugee numbers. And I'm delighted to welcome two distinguished guests. Baroness Valerie Amos is Director of the School of Oriental and African Studies at the University of London and she was previously the United Nations Under-Secretary-General for Humanitarian Affairs and Emergency Relief Coordinator, as well as a term as the British High Commissioner to Australia and as leader of the House of Lords. Valerie Amos, it's wonderful to have you with us. Thank you. And Professor Guy Goodwin-Gill is Emeritus Professor of All Souls College, Oxford, Emeritus Professor of International Refugee Law at the University of Oxford, and the founding editor of the International Journal of Refugee Law. He's in Melbourne to give the 2016 Sir Kenneth Bailey Memorial Lecture at the Melbourne Law School. Welcome to you, Guy. Thank you. Of course, the conflict in Syria is complicated and multi-layered, with every interpretation open to fierce challenge. There are regional and global rivalries playing out, with overlays of sectarian, geopolitical and identity politics that can be difficult to grasp. From this distance, it's hard to make sense of events, filtered for most of us through daily reports in our media and occasional testimony from Syrian refugees being resettled in Australia. Valerie Amos, who's involved in the Syrian conflict and why has such a bloody conflict proved so difficult to resolve? Well, Glenn, we could spend the whole program talking about that, but... It started with a small group of people protesting against uh, the Syrian government. Uh, It was entirely peaceful. And over time, the Syrian government came down very, very hard on those protesters. The international community at that time did not uh, say to the Syrian government, what you're doing um, is irresponsible. Um, it allowed that to continue until over a period of time it has become the bloody conflict that we see today. And in terms of who's involved, well, of course, you have the Syrian government, you have a number of what are termed moderate opposition groups, a whole range of uh, militia, armed opposition groups, right through to terrorist organisations like ISIS. And surrounding countries, uh, Turkey, Saudi Arabia, as well as the involvement of uh, Russia, Iran, the United States, 
all supporting different parts, uh, different organisations that are involved uh, in this crisis. So it has become a huge mess. Discussions at the UN in the Security Council, constant discussions, but essentially this conflict has become political. Uh, we see it through humanitarian eyes because we are all appalled at what is happening in-country, the large number of people who have had to flee, and of course, most recently, what has happened in Europe, uh, particularly last year, but continuing into this year, uh, where you've had countries actually saying, we are not going to allow in any more refugees, no matter how desperate the situation they're fleeing. So it's extremely complicated. I'm one of those people that hopes that the deal that has been struck between Russia and the United States holds, uh, at least to make sure some humanitarian aid gets in to those people who desperately need it. But the people of Syria also need peace. So I hope that this is the first step towards a transitional government and peace. And we're recording this as that ceasefire is meant to come into effect. Guy, as we know, millions of Syrians have fled abroad, a great many seeking asylum in the European Union. As an international lawyer working on the legal aspects of refugee flows, migration and forced displacement, what are the policy challenges that the Syrian refugee crisis is creating and why have they proved so difficult and so intractable? I think the first of the policy challenges relates in particular to what Valerie has just set out, that there was an emerging conflict and everyone stood back on a wait-and-see basis. And that surprises me. Well, it doesn't really surprise me because it's happened too many times before. The UN has struggled over many years to put in place early warning systems, systems that will, end, will, will look at what's going on, see incipient conflict, see the possibilities for excess, and then step in to do something to mediate the conflict, if that's what it is, or otherwise to address the causes. There is actually, there has been historically quite a lot of resistance to that on the part of states who've not wanted to allow the United Nations the opportunity to look too closely into their internal affairs. That, to some extent, has been overcome. But nonetheless, we've seen with respect to the Syrian crisis precisely that happening, the wait-and-see approach, the fingers-crossed approach, the hoping that refugees will not leave that country. When they do, that attitude continues. And it's a reflection of nearly, what, 100 years of law and practice in relation to refugees that states tend to see and hope uh, that refugee problems are temporary in nature. It turns out they're not. And in fact, in UNHCR's recent statistics, they indicate that the average length of a protracted refugee crisis is 26 years. So there is no basis upon which to formulate policies and practices, it seems to me, in the hope that these will be merely temporary. Now, you mentioned the large numbers of refugees who sought, Syrian refugees in particular, who sought asylum in Europe. The largest numbers actually are not in Europe. They are in the surrounding countries, 2.8, 2.9 million in Turkey. Uh, in Lebanon, one in four individuals in that country are now refugees, substantial numbers also in, in Jordan and in Iraq and indeed in, in Egypt. And indeed, it's the failure of the the rest of the world, of Europe in particular, to provide sufficient and adequate support to refugees in these first countries of refuge that itself fueled the onward movement for many of them into Europe. After all, refugee families looking at the prospects or no prospects of education for their children will often weigh in the balance the risks that they must take in order to have a future, not just for themselves, in fact, perhaps not indeed for themselves, but for their children. 
I'd really like to endorse what Guy has just said. And it's not just in relation to the Syria crisis. If you look at any refugee crisis across the world, it is the neighbouring countries that suffer the most. So the European Union, the United Kingdom, I mean, it becomes a massive issue for these countries politically, but in real number terms, the numbers are actually very small indeed compared to the numbers that have to be taken by neighbouring countries, which are very often themselves vulnerable and uh, fragile. And if you look at a country like Lebanon and the impact that this has had on the fragile political fabric of uh, Lebanon, it tells its own uh, story. I think the other thing, and I saw this so many times when I was at the United Nations, I went many times to Lebanon, to Turkey, uh, to Jordan, to uh, Iraq, and basically people were waiting to go home. They were expecting something to be done. They were expecting the conflict to be over. And it is only after people gave up hope that the conflict was going to be resolved, that they started to look further afield, to think about what's going to happen to uh, my children, what kind of future are they going to have. And we've also got to remember that refugees very much are the face of women and children. It's the women and children who uh, move first because very often the men either stay to fight or the men stay to look after whatever that family happens to have left. And the horror stories of what happened to those uh, women and what happens to those children as they move, very often they move several times inside the country. I met people who had moved for safety different places within Syria before they actually made the decision to leave Syria itself. So it's a big decision to leave your country. And the thing that I say to people is, we would do the same ourselves. If this were happening to us, we would want to secure the futures uh, of our children and we would take the risk, the big risk to move for that reason. So the Syrian conflict has been marked by a proxy war between Moscow and the US in the sense that Moscow is supporting the government and the US is supporting the rebel groups that are opposed to the government. I think it's a multi-proxy war. Yeah. I mean, as, as, as Valerie mentioned in her introduction, there are so many different parties supporting so many different parties. It makes it even more complex. And we've certainly had proxy wars in the past that produce refugees. I mean, that was the way of things very often in, in Africa during the 70s and 80s when, when we, we, where wars were a reflection very much of Cold War politics. But this is even more complex, I think, and it demands greater effort and imagination on the part of the peacemakers to find a way through this morass. So back in 2012, Valerie, you suggested that the international community had made, and I quote, a terrible mistake, unquote, when it dismissed a Russian officer to force the Syrian president uh, to step aside as part of a peace deal. Have we learned, have we moved forward since then? Well, one of the things that I think is uh, very clear when you look at what happens politically in the way that countries position themselves, and we see this a lot with diplomacy is that the timing has to be right for certain things to happen. Uh, and that, in one sense, is a terrible thing because it means that something like the Syria crisis goes on and on and on before you get to a point where Russia and the United States are able to come to some kind of deal. 
and personal actual personal relationships are, are an important element uh, of that and it's something that we very often forget but this has been a highly politicized conflict from the very beginning where countries took sides uh, countries within the security council with a veto took very clear sides you had statements made very early on by the united states by france by uh, the United Kingdom, for example, that Assad had to go. Now, we all know that if you're negotiating, you don't, you cannot negotiate from a position where actually you have your back up against the wall. You negotiate uh, from a position where uh, you are able to give something. By saying Assad had to go, uh, those countries were putting uh, were already making a demand that it was possible to be uh, refused. So negotiation became extremely difficult. Uh, so I think that that partly contributed uh, to the time it has now taken for us to get uh, to here. But it is not just about Russia and the United States. You have to factor in uh, the role that Iran has played, you have to factor in the role that Saudi Arabia has played. You have to factor in the role that Turkey has played um, and also the role that's being played by the neighboring countries as hosting uh, those communities. I mean, I remember many times going to uh, Lebanon and essentially having nothing to say to the Lebanese government apart from asking them to continue to welcome refugees. And they would look me in the eye and ask me who else was going to take uh, refugees apart from uh, neighbouring countries. And I had no answer for them, you know, asking them to abide by uh, the refugee convention when other countries were making it absolutely clear that they didn't want those refugees ending up on, on their borders. So the task of those officials working at the international level uh, in a real politic way to persuade leaders of governments uh, to do the right thing is not always easy. So is Syria now a failed state? Is this a state that will never again function? I hope that we're not saying that it will never again uh, function, but you have to look at the fact that uh, essential services have been uh, destroyed in terms of education facilities, uh, health facilities. Uh, the backbone of Syrian uh, society has gone. The Syrian pound has plummeted uh, in value. Uh, so it is very much a, a state which you can describe as being a failed state. But the fact of calling uh, a state a failed state does not mean that a, a state cannot recover. Um, I would be very concerned if, as a world, we decided that the fact that a country had been through so much conflict, that so much had been destroyed, then meant that they could never recover from that. Now, I agree with that absolutely, but I think that also sends a message to us about the future. If the present truce holds, if this is the opening to peace, are Syrian refugees going to go back tomorrow? No, of course they're not. Anyone who has seen the level of destruction in cities like Homs or Aleppo can see that there is a 10, 15, 20-year period of reconstruction ahead. And this is a lesson that needs to be learned now. It's going to require phenomenal investment, a Marshall Plan for Syria, in effect, to put it back in a position where it can function as a state as it did before. A long-term project, again, not a short-term project. Guy talked about the amount that 
we spend on prevention uh, as a world. As somebody who works at the United Nations, I can tell you, for example, that we spend about eight billion on peacekeeping missions. We spend about 600 million on what are called special political uh, missions. And included in that is work that is done on mediation and prevention. The human cost, economic cost, and other costs of conflict are so much greater that it's really, really important that we put the resources that we need into uh, prevention. Because if you think about the equivalent of having a Marshall Plan for Syria, and let's not forget the amount of money that we're going to have to put into countries like uh, Lebanon and Jordan, um, Iraq, to keep them stable whilst this is all going on, what we're going to have to do in relationship to uh, Turkey. This is a conflict now that has spread and has had uh, an implication and is continuing to have an impact in so many countries across the world. It's something that right at the beginning, we should have been able to say to each other, we cannot afford for this to spiral out of control. We say every single time there's a conflict like this, and I say like this, although every conflict is different, we say never again. And yet it happens again and again and again. We are not learning the lessons uh, of these conflicts and we should be learning them. Well, thinking about those lessons, Guy, you've pointed out in a publication that it's nearly a century since the League of Nations appointed the first High Commissioner for Refugees. And here we are with perhaps 63 million refugees around the world, the population of France at the moment. What have we learned over that century and why are we still looking at failure? I think that's a very good question. It's one I'm afraid to which I don't have the answer. The first League of Nations High Commissioner, the Norwegian Friedhof Nansen, was already engaging in the 20s in the sorts of activities which we see now as essential to the, to resolving the situation or helping to resolve the situation of, of, of the refugee. He was very keen to ensure, for example, that the refugee should find employment, should become self-sufficient. He appreciated the resilience of the refugee. Uh, he identified children as having special needs and placed particular emphasis on the education of children. He recognized the needs of refugees with disabilities and saw how they needed help. And he was a pioneer in promoting international cooperation in helping uh, countries of first refuge uh, meet the responsibility, which was not then framed so clearly in law as it is today, but in meeting the humanitarian responsibilities of receiving and accommodating refugees. At the same time, he worked in a context in which even then the refugee was seen as anomalous, as a, as a hiccup, as a transient, as a temporary phenomenon. And time and time again, we have learned that that is not the case. We cannot rely upon refugee situations ever being temporary. We certainly can't build policies and practices on that basis. The best that we can do hope that they are not permanent, but assume that they are indefinite. They may come to an end one day. We hope they will. But we cannot build policies on the expectation that they it will all be over by Christmas. Valerie, you mentioned the tragedy for children, women and children in particular, and perhaps 8 million children at the moment in refugee camps or in displaced around the world, and more than half of them from Syria and Afghanistan. Uh, children make up more than half of all refugees, despite being only a third of the global population. What policies are nominally in place or actually in place to protect these children and what's the moral responsibility of the great powers? 
Well, first of all, I think that where children are concerned, we should all, every single country in the world, uh, should take our responsibilities extremely seriously and welcome in those refugee children. And in the United Kingdom, which is where I am from, uh, a colleague of mine in the House of Lords was able to get an amendment through to a piece of legislation uh, earlier this year uh, to enable the British government to do precisely that. But since that legislation was passed, actually no child has entered the uh, United Kingdom. And I think that uh, we all see that as a sign of uh, failure, given how many children there are. For example, in Calais, in the most despicable conditions, who are waiting to go to another country. So I think that there is a responsibility that we have to children per se, which is, uh, as it were, above that, um, that we have more generally. In terms of what should we and do we do in refugee camps, obviously education is extremely important. But I would say the whole area of psych psychosocial support for those children is as important. Why do I say that? I've seen so many situations where the children actually are not able to learn, are not able to take advantage even of the limited educational opportunities that are offered in refugee camps if they have not been given that psychosocial support. Children are traumatised by what they have seen and what they have experienced. It would traumatise an adult much less a child. And I've actually seen the difference between those children who have received that support and how they are able to behave uh, in uh, schools, for example, as opposed to those children who have not been through uh, that situation. So many refugee children are forced to uh, work. Um, let's remember that the majority of refugees actually do not end up in a refugee camp. They end up in communities in the countries to which their families or their mothers have fled. So there's no money. Um, how are they going to survive? So very often it's the children who have to go out and get as much as they can to help the family. Then you have the particular situation that faces uh, girls, where many girls, but boys too, are um, abused um, I've seen mothers crying uh, where they have actually married off their daughters early because they have wanted to somehow secure their daughters' uh, futures. Uh, so many boys who end up in prison or are made to fight uh, at a very, very young age. So there is a huge impact uh, on children uh, these, this is a crisis that very much has a child's face, and I think that we have to remember that. No, I absolutely agree with that. And what, what surprises me and, and 
time and time again is the extent to which, notwithstanding the evidence that we have, decades of evidence showing the damage that is done to children through their through not only through their refugee experiences, but through the the ways and means by which they're treated thereafter, whether they're confined in camps or settlements or even detained or, as Varys mentioned, required to go out to work. We know the damage that results. We know the damage that's resulting, therefore, to a future generation. And yet our politicians and our practitioners choose policies which continue that damage. And that continues to amaze me. We must find ways of overcoming that, it seems to me, and urgently. Guy, in an article you wrote with Selim Kansazak in Foreign Affairs, you pointed out that the cost of caring for refugees is disproportionately borne by those nations least able to afford it. And you've mentioned just a minute ago that Turkey has shouldered some $6.5 billion in costs to host its Syrian refugees. In that article, you concluded with an argument, and I quote, those countries that drive people from their homes should pay the costs of providing them with a humane life. How should that work? What does that mean in the Syrian context? It's a rather idealistic idea, and I'm not sure of its practicality. I would need to do more investigation to that at the moment. But I was, I was somewhat surprised also in some research I was doing recently into the League of Nations that this idea came up even in the 1920s, at a time when many refugees were fleeing the new Soviet Union. The idea was floated that perhaps Russian assets outside of the Soviet Union might be used to assist in the, in the accommodation, rehabilitation, training, and migration of Russia. Russian refugees. So it's not an entirely new one. But it struck me and, and Salim as we were looking at this issue that the United Nations and states generally are now quite active in sanctioning individuals and indeed states which engage in policies and practices with, which are deemed to be contrary to international law. And it thought, uh, it, it, it occurred to us that instead of just freezing assets, maybe those assets might be redirected to providing or contributing to the provision of assistance for refugees in countries of, of, of first refuge. Now, in many cases, it may be difficult to identify funds that can be accessed. It may be difficult to link those funds to persons who are responsible. Uh, and it may be that the amount of money is not that great. But the symbolic value, I think, is something that, 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 that would count in, in the real world. Uh, just to pick up on that, and it, it's not so much a refugee example, but an example where um, there were sanctions against a country and then some of those resources were used to channel back into the country to deal with uh, a humanitarian situation is Libya. Uh, so that may be an example Good that example. Yeah. is uh, worth looking at. But I just wanted to come back to this issue about the pressure being on the poorest countries. It's also on the poorest communities in those countries. So let's remember that as well because... These are communities where there is already pressure on uh, educational facilities, health facilities. Very often those facilities don't exist or where they do, people have to uh, pay for them. So the community fabric uh, that exists in those countries is further destroyed by an influx of a large number of refugees. So initially, communities are very often very welcoming because actually they have perhaps themselves experienced this or they've seen the way that it's uh, worked in uh, parts of their own country. But over time, because of that pressure, it becomes more and more difficult. So I'd be remiss not to touch on Australia's role in this debate. And for Australians, one of the most confronting experiences of the past half century was to go to the original Holocaust Museum in uh, Jerusalem and to walk in and the first thing you saw was a wall that had on it a quote 
from the Australian representative at the Evian conference of 1938 explaining why Australia wasn't going to take refugees from Europe and specifically Jews from Germany. Uh, so we have a heavy moral responsibility in this country. One of the last acts of our previous Prime Minister, Tony Abbott, was to announce that we would settle an extra 12,000 refugees from Syria and Iraq. But a year later, only 3,500 have arrived and been settled, while Canada has settled 25,000 in roughly the same period. Why is it that some countries are able to do this and other countries clearly don't meet their responsibilities? Well, quite clearly in the case of Australia, we have a country which can fulfil that responsibility. It has the capacity. It has the experience. Indeed, its resettlement services are world-renowned. It has a phenomenally good record on the practicality of resettlement. So I think the answer must be in a different quarter. It must be in the political quarter. If they haven't been resettled, and no one doubts that there are plenty of uh, candidates available for resettlement, then a decision has been taken that they shall not be resettled. Now, perhaps someone will justify or seek to justify that on security grounds. But goodness me, security is not a new issue either. It's not as if we, countries like Australia, Canada, the United States, don't know how to do security. We've all done security. We've been doing it since time immemorial. So I think you need to look for your answer in another domain. There are very good examples of what Australia has done in, in the past. I mean, Vietnam uh, is uh, a good example. So I think it comes down to to leadership uh, and the ability to manage some quite difficult domestic political realities. And it's not easy because we've seen, for example, what happened with Angela Merkel and the decision that she took and the political hit that she has had as a result of doing that. But she did the right thing. And many of us applauded the decision that she took. But the political commentators said almost immediately, this is a political mistake and she will pay the price for it. And indeed, she already has, if you look at some of the election results, the domestic election results that we've had in Germany. So it takes a lot of political courage. It takes political leadership. And you actually have to go out there and explain to people why you're doing it and why it's important to do. But I absolutely recognise that there's a political price to be paid in some countries. I think that's absolutely right. And I think that very often it's underestimated how seriously we need to take the understandable, perhaps, concerns of, of ordinary people who are not clear in their own minds about exactly what's happening or why it should happen. Australia took the lead in the Indochina crisis in many respects, and it effectively... I think showed the Australian public that it had things under control. And I think that's one of the most important messages that a government can send to the people, that that the, it is able to manage what is going on. Um, and that, I think, is, a, is an issue which is particularly challenging. Angela Merkel perhaps did not address those issues, as we see now in the recent electoral results. But nonetheless, as Valerie says, she did the right thing. And it seems from the other responses, there have been many responses in Germany, that actually many Germans believe that she has indeed done the right thing. The 
hospitality, the reception shown to those who've come uh, has been quite phenomenal. And that's something which very often doesn't get into the news to the extent that it ought to. The ordinary hospitality, the commitment of ordinary people to the reception, the protection and assistance of refugees. The numbers, for example, of, of Brits who traveled to Calais, to the jungle, to provide assistance is quite remarkable. And I think is an indication of that other untapped resource that we have in the community. I completely agree with that. There is been a huge outpouring of support uh, from ordinary people to Syrian refugees across the world. And people have gone to Greece, for example, to uh, Italy uh, to help uh, as people come to those uh, first countries. People have gone to Turkey and uh, elsewhere. But this word that Guy used, control, is absolutely critical. One of the reasons, in my view, that the European Union is seen as having made so, such a mess of this is because there is a perception that they are not in control. And it is more than a perception because it is also a reality. They can't even get the registration right. I mean, we're talking about the European Union here. They can't get the registration of refugees right. And people think if you can't even do that, how can we have confidence in those governments and in the European Union as a whole in actually managing this crisis? And I think that that then leads to a loss of public confidence, uh, which then leads to people feeling, well, we don't want those refugees here. I think that, I agree, I agree with that absolutely. I mean, the, the European Union has begun to put together what looks like a nice structure called a common European asylum system. Uh, it involved, in principle, sharing responsibility for refugees on a basis of solidarity and fairness, amongst others. Uh, but it never completed the picture. It put into place legislation directives which identified which state should be responsible for refugee claims, amongst other things. But it never went into the business of effectively sharing responsibility. So, for example, when Italy was engaged in its magnificent rescue operation Mare Nostrum and took on board 140,000 people in distress at sea, when it turned to its European Union partners and said, come on, give us a hand, the silence was deafening. Germany had had a similar experience in the 1990s with refugees from former Yugoslavia and Kosovo. And of course, Greece has had a similar response in relation to those crossing uh, from Turkey in recent years. And the, the European Union still seems determined not to go down that path of fair sharing of responsibility. It will revise the so-called Dublin scheme, but the purpose is still to keep refugees out of Europe, to make frontline receiving states primarily responsible for defending the whole of Europe. And that, I think, is incompatible with the idea of a European policy and practice. This isn't a European issue. It's not the responsibility of one state alone, whether it be Italy or Greece. And if there is a difficulty with registration, with given the resources of the EU at large, I mean, there is difficulty, as I've already the European Union should have been there to provide the assistance necessary, because this is in the interests of all, and it failed to do that. I remember years ago, we started to talk about Fortress Europe. Well, we have it again. I mean, countries uh, within the European Union that are putting up barriers, fences, uh, walls to prevent refugees coming into uh, their countries. And in terms of countries holding each other accountable for the things that as part of the European Union they have signed up to, that hasn't happened. They have signed up to principles of solidarity, of cooperation, of fair sharing of responsibility. And I regret that those terms do not translate into certain European languages. We see that in practice.
but not to the language of responsibility to protect, which is the argument that former Australian politician Gareth Evans put yep. about how states should respond should, yep, to Syria. Yep, yep. And I'd like, as we turn to home, just to come back to Syria, Valerie Amos, in, in 2013, while with the United Nations, you said in The Guardian that the politics of Syria are everywhere and the people are not. What did you mean by that and what are the implications? Well, what I meant was by that was that there was a lot of focus on the political relationship between uh, countries and the impact that that was having on whether or not the Syria conflict got resolved, but that the impact of the conflict on the ordinary people of Syria, uh, thousands of people who were under siege, uh, there are still people under siege within their own uh, country, the majority of them under siege by their own government, but some communities in uh, who are seen as supporting the government, but in areas held by opposition groups, for example, under siege from those uh, opposition groups. We had story after story after story and evidence of people running out of food, uh, basically on the brink of starvation, and yet we weren't doing what we needed to do to get humanitarian aid to those people. We spent a long time getting the Security Council to agree that we could take humanitarian aid into Syria across borders that were not controlled by the Syrian government because the Syrian government kept saying, we are a sovereign state and if you as the United Nations cross uh, a border without our permission, you are breaking international law. We had to negotiate that. We finally got a Security Council a resolution. This was about getting humanitarian aid in to the Syrian people that that Syrian government was saying that it wanted to protect. But because these were people that were not supporting the government, they didn't think that they had a right to that humanitarian aid. This is absolutely basic. You had a Syrian government that was actually destroying education facilities, health facilities, facilities that were desperately needed by the people on the ground because they were in areas that were not controlled by that government. And yet the levers to hold the Syrian government accountable were almost nothing. Uh, so this is something that the international community is going to have to uh, address. How can you have countries that are part of the United Nations with three big pillars uh, that helped to form the United Nations, one of which is around uh, human rights. And yet that accountability mechanism is lacking. And Guy, you wrote in Foreign Affairs about the need to square the circle of justice. Why do we find it so hard to deal with the protection of refugees? It's a good question. I don't know why I continue working in this area, quite frankly, because each day brings its new frustrations. And yet somehow or other, I do think that we have within the context of the United Nations organization itself, um, we have the basis for what is clearly going to be necessary to meet sort of the problems that Valerie has just mentioned. We're going to have to learn to cooperate better. Uh, not only in the mediation and prevention of conflict, but in the in the provision of humanitarian assistance and ultimately in the provision of solutions. We 
somehow haven't yet learned how to do that. We talk about the duty to cooperate, but it is very difficult to nail it down into concrete terms. It's always been that way. Um, I still hope that we have been able, we will be able to learn from the lessons of today and move towards a, a, a more progressive and more practical and more humanitarian process. Guy, I think why we continue to work in this area, despite all of the challenges, all of the disappointments, all of the frustrations, is because we hope that we can make a difference. And actually, if you look at what has happened since the United Nations was formed and the kinds of frameworks of justice and law that have been developed internationally since that time, we've made progress. Yes, we have a problem with implementation, but we have made progress. And that's the thing that I cling on to. And I also cling on to the fact that we have to be strong advocates for the people who find themselves in the middle of this chaos and aren't necessarily able to be their own advocates. So that's essentially why we're here. I think that's absolutely right. And I think where I draw strength so often is from the individual experiences of refugees themselves on their resilience, their enterprise, their imagination. And they're always going to do, in many respects, better than the bureaucrats and the politicians who think they can throw obstacles in their way because there's something very powerful that drives them. It's, it's coercion, it's compulsion, yes, but it's also concern for themselves and their families to ensure that they have a future. And that is a force to be reckoned with. We are very fortunate indeed. There are people who do care and who do give thought and advocacy to these really important issues. So my thanks to our guests today, Baroness Valerie Amos. Thank you. And Professor Guy Goodwin-Gill. Thank you. My pleasure. Our next episode of The Policy Shop will look at homelessness, a growing area of concern here in Australia. I'm Glenn Davis, and I hope you'll join us then. Policy Shop is produced by Owen Hahasi and Heather Jarvis, with audio engineering by Gavin Neighbour and research by Ellie MacDonald. You can find this podcast and read more on this topic at pursuit.unimelb.edu.au. And remember to subscribe to The Policy Shop on iTunes. Copyright University of Melbourne 2016.